It won't be my normal, funny, clever, having a conversation. Now, you may have seen this. We've got Richard Dawkins, we've got Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Dennett. I forget his first name. Dennett. What? Daniel Dennett there. And the four of them sat down in Washington, D.C. They were there for some atheistic convention, and they had a conversation for about two hours. And this video went viral uh, on the internet. If you look at, up the, uh, the YouTube video and watch it, it has comments down there like porn for, the, porn for the mind. And like this is the beginning of the atheistic revolution. And uh, it was called the conversation that sparked an atheist revolution. And that atheist revolution being new atheism or the new version of atheism. And that's what I want to talk with you a little bit about today is the history of atheism, a very brief history of atheism, and then talk about this new atheist movement, what that looks like, and maybe how that is affecting us here in Australia. Now, I have to give credit before I start this to my uh, university lecturer. His name's Scott Kirkland. Uh, I did a unit with him called Atheism for Christians uh, last semester, and I've taken a bunch of the stuff from that fantastic unit, a very, very clever man, and uh, so I've gleaned from that, so I just have to I think it's very important to acknowledge where things come from uh, because, you know, nothing comes from ourselves really, does it? And especially as a speaker or a preacher, we're always passing on something that has come from someone else. But this whole uh, idea of God, who is God, atheism, Christianity, this whole struggle that we're in, and Pastor Bill touched on it, oh, sorry, Dr. Bill touched on it before, Pastor Dr. Bill, reverend, <laughs> scholar, <laughs> university man, touched on it before. We, we, we all wrestle with the same things that our atheist friends wrestle with. How can an invisible God actually be there? Uh, how can we believe in something we can't see? It's probably the first question you ask when you're five years old growing up in a Christian family. How can a, a good God be okay with the obvious pain, suffering and evil that we experience in this world? How can I believe in something without seeing hard evidence? Has science disproved God or has science at least outmaneuvered God and the Christian perspective on life many of the experiences that we have don't suggest that there is a God or suggest if there is a God maybe he's watching but he's just sitting on his couch at home and not particularly involved or maybe doesn't really want to help maybe he can't help these are all the questions that we wrestle with about God in our faith, but I think every human being wrestles with these. And Australians are equally disillusioned. In Australia, we've, we're now the top religion in Australia is actually no religion at all. And this happened in our census in 2016. I'm very excited because we're only about one year away from the next census. Um, and this happened in 2016. In 2011, it was still the Catholics and then no religion was second. Uh, but in 2016, no religion has become the number one religion in Australia. It increased from 22% to 30% from between 2011 and 2016. And the Catholics are second. And as we know as well, statistically, um, Australians, only about 4% actually go to church anyway on a Sunday. And when I say go to church, I mean go to church at least once a month on a Sunday. So although there may be 60 odd percent saying they're Christian, um, or it's about 52% now, very few of those actually go 
to church. So we have this increased secularism in our culture and Aussies are wrestling with the question of God. It's obvious. And during that wrestle and as they're asking those deep questions or maybe as they're not thinking too much about it at all, we're fast secularizing in every area of our culture. Whether you've got kids in a local school, whether you watch the media, whether it's in your workplace, uh, anything to do with God, religion, Christianity, uh, Christian roots of this nation, all those things are kind of being deleted out of policies, taken out of education and removed. And there's even an increased boldness among those who don't believe, the unbelievers, uh, to rubbish religion or to invalidate Christian arguments or maybe at a minimum just to call you delusional, uh, bigoted, maybe even more than that, to call you dangerous that even your Christian beliefs that not only, not only should they be private and unspoken of, but actually, in fact, they are dangerous. Why are they dangerous? Why? Because they oppress. They limit human flourishing. We say that Christianity in our worldview is the answer to human flourishing. While the common rhetoric and the narrative at the moment is actually Christianity and religion is an oppressive, oppressive religion and ideology and that actually squashes, quenches human flourishing. It's oppressive of identity, oppressive of freedom. It's oppressive of allowing people to just live their lives and do as they need to do. So as we've heard a little bit um, throughout the conference already, naturalism um, and atheism go, go hand in hand. Atheism is really part of the naturalistic worldview. And before I, before I dive into that, I will share with you one scripture, one scripture, just so that this can still be qualified as a sermon, okay? So the first, the first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, God says, you shall have no other gods beside me. Now, what is interesting about this first commandment or about all the commandments is when God speaks, you shall have no other gods beside me, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. He's speaking to the individual. So this wasn't a, uh, only a, a corporate or a, a community set of laws, but the Hebrew word there is directed at the individual. So he's saying to you, you shall have no other gods before me. You, the individual, shall not murder. It's put on the individual. The responsibility to follow God and listen to him is put on the individual. And when God says you shall have no other gods beside me, what he's meaning is that there shouldn't be any other gods in my presence. Not above me, not below me, not beside me, nowhere near me, nowhere at any time, in any place in history, in any location, for all of eternity, nothing should be even in my presence or in the same room as me. I am the Lord your God. I am who I am, the great I am. Atheism begins to look to set up another God, something else, to put something else in the room, to at least compete with God, to maybe question God, to maybe talk about who, what his character is or isn't. And we see in Acts chapter 17 that as Paul is uh, there with the, the Stoics and the uh, Epicureans, that he comes across the idol, the idol to an unknown God. And this is the question that we have as humans. This is a question that Aussies have. What, what is this idol? What is this unknown God? What sits in this place? What is that? How do we define that? 
In Exodus 20, verse 3, God told us, it's me. I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods beside me. But we see Paul wrestling with this in the first century, that this unknown God, this, this, is there some other option? Is there some alternative to the first commandment? Is there some alternative to the Jewish God? And man has spent a long time, millennia now, searching for God or searching for something else other than God. The naturalistic worldview really has atheism at its core. And if I can say renaissance, if that's okay, Dr. Bill, the renaissance, uh, the renaissance continued this, this human struggle between the heart and the head. Should it be heart? Should we be all head? Is it a combination of heart and head? How does this work? And in the renaissance, we saw a flourishing of both, I suppose. We saw the passions of the heart and arts and all of these things, uh, geography, music, all of these things begin to emerge like never before. It was a great time uh, in human history. But one of the things that came with the Renaissance was a very strong critique of religion. And obviously in the West, that religion was Christianity, a very strong critique of religion. And people began to become bold. And I think in a lot of ways, this was a good thing. It's a healthy thing. People were becoming bold enough to question the church, question the Pope, question uh, the Christian uh, decisions, behaviors, priests, uh, the Bible, all of these things came, came under deep scrutiny. And at the same time of, with this flourishing of the arts and all these things, and therefore the questioning and the philosophical questions about life and, and therefore religion, because, you know, if you're living in that, that era of history, the church is just in your face every day. I mean, everyone goes to church. Everyone believes this. Whatever the priest says is, is the word of God. It, it, it's not like today. It's, I think it's very difficult for us today in the modern world to even understand just how separate we are from belief systems and churches and institutions and these things. In those times, it was so intermeshed. I mean, a lot of the philosophers and, and that I'm going to talk to you about, the atheists, I mean, that they, were, they were at the forefront of questioning Christian belief, but even so, they were very careful. They were very careful in their questioning. It could cost you your, your life your reputation, you could be killed, you could be kicked out. Many of them were kicked out of universities even for suggesting that there may not be a God. They lost their whole career and so it was very, very pervasive in the Renaissance yet we've got this critique of religion and at the same time this growth in the scientific method. So this scientific method is now coming to the forefront and, and, and Bill, sorry, I keep calling him Pastor Bill, Bill um, um, articulated that well. I thought that was excellent before how we, we had uh, revelation, uh, we had reason, and, and we had all these things. We had um, experience, and these things began to get chipped away at or knocked off. And, and this time of the Renaissance, uh, revelation, religion's being critiqued, but also this scientific method is growing. And again, it's not evil, it's not sinful, uh, but it began to be pitched against or used as part of the religious critique. Why do we need God when we can measure everything? We can understand everything. We needed revelation before and we needed God or some kind of God because how did the sun come up and, and how did the tides work? And, and we had no idea. So everything was projected onto God as well. He knows and we don't know. But the scientific method began to give, give us insight. We do understand now. So therefore, the question became, is God really necessary? Is he really relevant? 
do we really need these belief systems? Is he really there anyway? I don't know. I can't see him. And the spread of three free thoughts, skeptical inquiry, along with this increased criticism of religion. And then we have the French Revolution, which was noted as unprecedented atheism for a decade. It was a godless, uh, bloody slaughter. And uh, if, if ever God was put to death or lost, it was in the French Revolution. That brings us to David Hume, who I'll start with. I'm going to move from Hume to Sam Harris, who's a, who's a modern atheist. And David Hume said that uh, he was a philosopher, a, a Scotsman, and uh, alive from 1711 to 1776. You may be familiar with one of his most famous works called Of Miracles, where he begins to look at the whole idea of miracles and the existence of miracles and whether they're true or not. And Hume said that a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. So in his work of miracles, Hume makes his case for the fact that miracles are, are unlikely because they would be a violation of, of nature, of the natural order. And a wise man, a rational man, a good man, a smart man obviously has to go with the evidence and what can be seen, not a random violation of nature. He also said no testimony of ever any miracle has ever amounted to probability. So a miracle can never be probable. It's, it's not likely for a miracle to happen. Therefore, he was very skeptical about miracles. Now, the problem is miracles underpin religion. In the case of religion and its reliance on miracles, Hume makes his definitive attack. He postulates that the rational man cannot put his faith in miracles due to their improbability. Therefore, religion, which is founded on miracles, such as the Immaculate Conception, has no firm basis. Its core miracle, the resurrection of Christ, is the cornerstone. And Hume hits at this core miracle of Christianity that Jesus rose from the dead as being completely improbable and therefore the rational, wise, good person could not believe such a thing. Moving on to Karl Marx, who we know well. Karl Marx and the cruelty of industrial capitalism. He lived from 1818 to 1883 and wrote many books, which you'll be familiar with. The Communist Manifesto, The German Ideology, which was published after his death, and Das Kapital. He said, which is a very famous quote, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Now, what Marx was saying here is positive towards religion because he's saying he understands why we would have religion, why we would have belief in God, because life is brutal, it's cruel, we suffer, it's heartless, it's soulless, and religion gives it meaning, it gives it a soul, it gives it a heart, it's the opioid of the people, it's the painkiller. So among all the pain... Religion every Sunday, belief in God, the Bible provides an injection, an injection, a painkiller that makes everything okay. 
Now, Marx was coming out of this very strong philosophical German school. You've got Hegel, very famous uh, German philosopher, and Feuerbach, who, who was a, uh, around at, this, at the same time. And the atheistic idea at this time was that God was man-made and that he was a projection of good human qualities. So for Marx, religion was necessary because life is difficult and we suffer, yet religion is completely man-made. It makes sense to make up a religion because it's a difficult world, yet what we've made up is merely a projection of human qualities onto God. So take all the best qualities of humans, love, mercy, you know, uh, uh, charity, all these kind of things, and we project them onto this idea. He's, he doesn't exist. He's not there, but we project them onto what we call God. God is love. God is merciful. God is all-powerful. But he's just man-made. He's just a human idea. Now, Marx's main idea, therefore, if it's not God and if there is no God and, and religion is just man-made in order to deal with the suffering of this life, then what is the human problem? What is the human condition? And Marx proposed a reinterpretation of history, not based on religion or based on God or based on belief, but based on production, based on economics and the way that or, um, um, the way that society organizes itself. His perspective of history was that it was a struggle, a struggle not between man and God, but a struggle between the worker and the boss, a struggle between those that were ruling and those that were doing the labor. And he suggested this reinterpretation of history and therefore this ideology that if we remove God and religion and, and, and we don't need that anymore, we can just understand that it's really a class struggle between people and we need to empower the worker. This leads us to Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the God Slayer. 1844 to 1900, and his probably most famous work is called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And his idea, Nietzsche's idea well, that he proposes in this book is the difference between good and bad and good and evil. So Nietzsche saw, he, he did a deep dive into what is good, and he came to understand that, that the origins of good are actually in the Aristocat. So the Aristocat has is good, is noble, is the person who leads, the person who rules the society is good. Bad is to be low, is to be common, is to be a plebeian, a pleb. The slaves are bad because they don't rule. The rulers are good because they have the wisdom to rule. They've come to that position because they're actually better. This was Nietzsche's idea of good and bad. Now, good and evil was how the slaves and the plebs thought. They looked at evil as the aristocrats. Evil was the ruling class. Where good was this slave's revolt and the rebellion of the slave against the master. Nietzsche's allegiance was to this system, however, of good and bad. He believed in the oppression of those who are low, those who are poor, those who are common, those who are workers, because he believed that those who are in power were good. 
because they were wiser, they were smarter, they were richer. This is what it means to be noble. So his allegiance was that. But how do you explain the uprising of the common man? And he philosophized, he came to the place of saying that, that, that for the common man, they have to work on this paradigm of resentment. So the ego of the slave or the plebeian in, in their resentment has to create a villain, has to create a bad. And the bad becomes Nietzsche's good. The bad is the ruling class. And the resentment of the slave victimizes themselves and places the ruler as the direction of their hate and the direction of their force, therefore leading to the overthrow of the enemy, therefore leading to the thought that culpability, sin, what's evil in the word, it lies with the upper class, it lies with the nobility. And this hostility is therefore validated and their frustration to life and, and the difficulties of life is validated because of this oppressive leader. It's okay to be, to be hostile and to rise up from this place of resentment and overthrow this upper class. Now for Nietzsche, he saw the Jewish people, the Jewish people as the ultimate evil. He called them the priests, the haters that hate true good. He saw the Jewish people as these, these, these slaves, these commoners that were like, that were trying to overthrow everything that was good and that they had inverted good by trying it on as weakness. Because for the Jew, it was to be weak before God. It was to be humble before God. Nietzsche believed in good and the nobility of the warrior, the one that would rise up, the self-made man that would rise up in power and strength. Those that were noble and those that should rule were those that had the strength to rule. Where those that believed in God, they were weak. They were meek. They came humbly before their God. Nietzsche saw Jesus Christ as the epitome of this weakness. Jesus Christ was the worst of all the Jews because he gave victory to the poor. For Nietzsche, it was the ubermensch, the superhuman, the modern man that would supersede the suffering of life, that would bring a new set of values that when Nietzsche declared that God is dead, the answer now that God, that when, when he said that God was dead, he was saying that we don't need God any longer. We're, 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 we're more intelligent than the need for God or religion now. We've superseded the need for this kind of thinking, this lowly poverty type mindset, this, this Jesus Christ, this epitome of weakness. We've, we've superseded that now. We're becoming modern. We're strong. And he, and, and he proposes this ubermensch who can fill the gap left by the death of God. And this ubermensch shall be that to the overman, a laughing stock or painful embarrassment, Nietzsche said. You have made your way from worm to man, and much in you is still worm. Once you were apes, and even now too, man is more ape than any ape. The overman is the meaning of the earth. Leads us to Sigmund Freud. 1856 to 1939. Now, Freud was interesting because he basically 
proposed the rewriting of Jewish history. And in his work, Moses and Monotheism, he says, in some respects, the new religion meant a cultural regression as compared with the older Jewish one. As regularly happens when a new mass of people of a lower level break their way in or are given admission, the Christian religion did not maintain maintain the high levels in things of the mind to which Judaism has soared. So for Freud, he saw Judaism, or Moses, as a powerful thing. And he saw Christianity as a regression from the intellectualism of Judaism. Jan Asaman says that Freud took Moses to be not a Jew, but an Egyptian and a follower of Achichenten. And his monotheistic revolution, after the death of the heretic king, the new religion was soon abolished in Egypt. Moses, however, unwilling to return to pantheism, returned to the Jews who had settled in the Delta, taught them his religion and led them out of Egypt. But the Jews proved unable to stand the hardships of monotheism. They murdered Moses and subsequently repressed the deed. The murder of Moses was a traumatic experience for the perpetrators because it was the reenactment, so the acting out of a repressed memory, the primal parricide, which means murder of the father. This primal sense of parricide left indelible memory traces in the human psyche, forming its depth of these traces in the hidden depth men have always known that they once possessed a primal father and that they killed him. So in Freud's far-stretching, far-fetched rewrite of Jewish history, as I read through this, I just thought it was so absurd. As he rewrites human history or the the Jewish human history, he puts Moses as as the creator of this religion. He begins to articulate the Jewish character and, 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 and this, as he psychoanalyzes and diagnoses these, trying to look for these historical religious underpinnings. Why do people believe? So Freud's looking at why do people try to understand the world through, the, through God, through God the Father, through religion? As he began to look at that, he was proposing that it's actually this repressed memory that we have, that we need a protective father. So therefore, he has to rewrite the Jewish religion, say that they murdered murdered Moses, repressing the memory, murdering the father of their religion, because because that's what happens. We, We seek to kill off the protective father. And that's why we have these daddy issues. That's why we have these longings for a protective father, because constantly we've killed off that which tries to protect us. He saw Judaism as an advance. While Christianity and Jesus Christ was a regression, he called Christianity, Freud did, he called Christianity a return to Egypt. A return to Egypt, a return to slavery. Why? Because Christianity promoted a spiritual life, promoted spirituality, and he saw that as spirituality over intellect. Leads us to Michael. Foucault, not Foucault, Foucault, 1926 to 1984, French philosopher, a a historian of ideas, a social theorist and literary critic. In 1975, Foucault wrote a book called Discipline and Punishment and he used the panopticon as a metaphor for for the modern disciplinary society. So the panopticon, does anyone know what that is? It's the watchtower in the prison. 
So the panopticon stands at the center of the prison as the watchtower, and then all of the cells go out in different directions from this centerpiece, this center watchtower. So they use a similar architecture in hospitals. So you have the nurses' quarters in the middle of the ward, and then from there they can see 360 degrees around. So Foucault uses this, this metaphor of the panopticon to, to, to talk about discipline, and that we've come to this place in our society where we discipline people by watching their every move. Now, as I read through Foucault's work, there's some horrible, horrible uh, recounts of some of the crime and punishment from earlier times, like Christian priests cutting off people's arms and uh, people being um, drawn by, what was it called when they... Um, the four horses go in different directions, all these kind of things. And he begins to, uh, in his philosophy, writes a lot about discipline and punishment. And, and a lot of the roots of discipline and punishment, he postulates that they start in religion and they start with this idea of God wanting to hurt us and wanting to oppress us. But then over time, the human race has not begun to punish the outer so much. So we used to rip off limbs and we used to cut people and burn people and it would all be done in the name of God. But now punishment has become far more internal and uh, we, 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 we try to punish people by taking away internal things and not so much scourging the body anymore. And he proposes that this is a picture of God. This is a picture of God. So uh, uh, like a panopti uh, the panopticon, am I saying that right? Panopticon. I think I am, this central tower that God is omnivoyant. That's a new word for you. I love this word when I read it, though. God is omnivoyant. So the idea of God, now it doesn't believe in God, but the idea that religion creates of God is that he sits in a watchtower. Now you think of the watchtower in the prison. You can't see the prison guard. You can't see through the windows. They're, 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 they're one-way windows. But the prison guard is supposedly watching the prisoner at all times, 24-7, 360 degrees, omnivoyant. You can never get away from him. So God is pitched as this oppressive, omnivoyant, that's always looking down, ready to punish. That he doesn't have to act in punishment towards you because just by his gaze, you are always oppressed. You're always under the finger because the all-powerful, omnivoyant God that is like the faceless guard in the prison watchtower. To the inmates, this guard is omnivoyant. The mere possibility of his view upon the prisoner is enough to restrain their misbehavior. However, to Foucault, this onlooker is watching with judgmental eyes. The right to gaze upon the subject upon the human being is the source of power, oppression, and control. God is not a father at all. He's an omnivoyant oppressor, hidden in the dark, but always watching you to restrain your behavior. Moving on, this is a contemporary Agaben, 1942. He was born. He's a fam the most famous contemporary Italian philosopher. Agaben spoke about the ordinary man has survived God without too much difficulty. Agamemnon is an expert when it comes to bureaucracy and the law, and it's the whole idea that without God, we have the law. Now, any good law student knows that the law is built on God and the law, 
uh, without God and without the character of God, there is no law because it flows from him. But for Agaben, he's proposing that without God, we're okay and that the law is enough. Interesting, his work centers on Adolf Eichmann, the Jewish killer and uh, mechanist, but, but mechanic, sorry, behind the idea of the final solution to finally exterminate the Jews. And has anyone seen the, the movie from a few years ago? A really good movie called uh, The Mechanic, I think it is, or The Mechanism or something like that. And it's the story of Adolf Eichmann, excellent movie, and how they captured him in 1960 in Argentina. And then he was brought to Jerusalem on, on a very, very public trial before all the cameras and uh, before all uh, the Jewish people and he was tried and eventually hung. But Agaben brings up an interesting point because he calls Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, the embodiment of the ordinary man. So Eichmann claimed in these, Jewish, these, these trials in Jerusalem to be innocent before the law. He pitched himself as an ordinary bureaucrat doing his job in the Nazi regime. To us and to outsiders, what Eichmann did was a, a treacherous evil. I mean, he was the embodiment of evil to be able to do such a thing, to be able to uh, put together a strategy to exterminate the, the Jews. But according to the German law at the time, he was merely just a bureaucrat during his, his job. So he presented himself as a man of the law, this is a problem when you take God out of the law because where does the law sit? So Carl Schmitt was the designer of the, the Nazi law system and he expelled a lot of the laws that were tied to God, tied to morality and brought in. He, he was the one that, that, that articulated the German laws to, to, to validate what the Nazi regime wanted to do. So again, the expulsion of God, the expulsion of religion as an impressive idea allows us to make laws to do what we want to do. The problem is you get these situations like Eichmann, where who's right? Without God, where is the standard? Without God, where is the line? Who draws the line? Before the German people in that time, Eichmann was a bureaucrat doing his job. But before the eyes of God, before the eyes of the rest of the world, he's the embodiment of evil. Finally, this got touched on a little bit yesterday as well, but finally the feminist criticism of religion is an interesting part of the atheistic uh, history. We're probably sitting now in the third wave, what's called the third wave of feminism. I have heard the fourth wave of feminism being thrown around, but the third wave probably stretches from late last century and into this century. And fe feminism um, hurts Christianity and hurts the belief in God because it pitches Christianity especially as male, a male hierarchy. God is male, a father. Jesus, the son, is male. The disciples were all male. The Bible authors are all male. Basically, Christianity is a boys' club of sorts that alienates women. The feminist atheistic critique is that Christianity projects maleness onto God 
And it's a way of men staying in power and controlling women. The whole idea is to alienate women. And Paul in Ephesians 5 and 6 hardens this male position when he talks about the submission of women. A lot of Christian language is masculine. The imagery of God is very masculine, including his numerous characteristics and qualities. They correspond and reinforce him as a male authority with domination qualities, omnipresent qualities. These in turn lead to a resultant feminine stereotype, which is lacking. It's lacking. It's, 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 it's futile. It's characterized by submission. It's characterized by passivity. It's characterized by servitude and dependence. It's what Christianity does to women. It makes them weak, dependent servants. And it's harmful to the women position and does, doesn't do anything to promote them as equal, but actually maintain them as an outsider. Atheism has had a huge impact on, sorry, feminism has had a huge impact on the atheistic movement and again, muddying the waters on who God is and what his character is. Now, I apologize because I'm not apologetically balancing much of this, but I just thought there's probably... The best would just be to give you a flood of information today and then let you uh, pick through that or cry through it or whatever you want to do. Interestingly, new atheism and this, um, the cultural moment that we live in is new atheism, it's being called. So Hawkins, uh, Dawkins, sorry, Harris, Dennett, Hitchens are seen as the face of this new conversation that's sparking an atheist revolution. This so-called new atheism is really a school of contemporary Western philosophy and an arm of atheism. It's really the same old arguments against God that we have had for centuries upon centuries, but it's with a new twist of exuberance, cutting sarcasm, long ramblings, very clever writing, really aimed at a whole new generation of unbelievers. I also have a Stephen Fry uh, quote. Do I have it there? Oh, no, I don't. Oh, you know what? I've jumped a slide. Sorry about that. I do have a Stephen Fry quote, but I'm going to leave that for a moment and come back to it. What I was going to say, sorry, I've totally stuffed that up. What I was going to, you're all looking at the slide going, this doesn't make sense because I jumped one. What I was going to say quickly before I move into new atheism is that all of this atheism, this history that I'm talking about here from Hume to Harris, is actually negative theology. Everyone say negative theology. Dennis Turner in How to Be an Atheist, and this is a really good little article if you want to read it. It's a lecture he gave at Cambridge in 2001. It's called How to Be an Atheist. And he kind of, in a very clever way, pokes at atheism. And he laments that it's really a rarity these days to find a real card-carrying atheist, one who is a true atheist. See, true atheists don't talk about God. Because he is nothing, therefore there is nothing to say. It's very rarely that you find a true atheist. So you notice in all of my, most of my slides when I say atheism, I have a lowercase capital A. Because atheism, lowercase, is really just negative theology. It's the inverse of affirmative or positive theology. So the idea of atheism, really lowercase atheism, lowercase a atheism, is to negate God. But the atheist is really just a peculiar kind of theologian. 
Atheists have really done no greater work than a theologian in exploring the existence of God. Atheists really, in the modern day atheists, really more like a parasite who just latches on to theist claims and rejects them. This is less than than the true theologian who has already done this hard critique of God and looked at God from the negative aspect. The term negative theology refers to theologies which regard negative statements as primary in expressing the knowledge of God. Again, brings us back to every human's wrestle on whether God is true, on King David's doubts of whether God will really come through him. We see lots of negative theology even in the word of God. The existence of God is a topic for both theists and atheists. One affirms and one denies, and you'll find it very difficult to find a true card-carrying atheist who does not talk about God. In all of my readings that I've done, and a few of the guys I've showed you just there, Karl Marx is actually probably one of the most true atheists you'll read because he, does, he says almost nothing about God. He talks about religion because that's okay because that's man-made and he, he explains why that exists, but he really says very little about God because to say who God is or who God isn't is actually to explore the existence of God. We call that theology. The new atheist movement is the same, saying nothing that has not been said before, although as I was saying, it really has a whole new angle for a new generation of unbelievers. And Stephen Fry says, um, there's a book which I've got, if anyone wants to borrow it, feel free, but it's the transcript of that two-hour video that went viral and Stephen Fry does the introduction and the foreword for it. And Stephen Fry says that the four had been had between them broken new ground in the English-speaking world, opening up debate everywhere and empowering humanism and secularism for a new generation, giving voice to the always lurking and now growing suspicion that the worst aspects of religion from faith healing, fakery to murderous martyrdom could both be separating from the essential nature of religion itself. Gary Habermans, and again, this, I would encourage you to read, sorry, Habermas, a famous theologian, wrote a great article called The Plight of New Atheism, a critique. And in this article, he calls them atheistic evangelicals, secular fundamentals, fundamentalists, bombastic preachers, and the masters of hyperbole which means exaggeration. The the vocabulary of their negative theology is highly contentious. So it's interesting, the new atheist movement is very cutting, it's very sarcastic, it's quite nasty, it's quite strong. There's lots of ramblings, lots of colourful language, and there's lots of interesting critiques of God's character. Words like God is murderous, irrational, genocidal, not great, to name Hitchens' book, God is not great. Religions and its subscribers are described as delusional, ignorant, fanatical, and poisonous. And the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament even is considered to be a complete and utter nightmare. Nevertheless, sifting through the work of these new atheists, many of the issues raised are nominal concerns, laced with a lot of enthusiastic rhetoric and talk. These concerns about religion must be separated from the substantive arguments. What are the real 
meaty bits? What are the actual questions that are worth a response and separating that from this hyperbole and this stirring up of trouble and contention? I think what we've heard the last day and a half really helps us with this because we want to come with grace. We want to come not to win an argument. We don't want to get into a fight. You know, often when you're playing a sport and things begin to get a little bit heated on the court, you say to your teammates, just don't get involved with the referee. Don't, don't start pushing and shoving. Like, if we just stay cool, we'll win the game. If the other team gets all stirred up, then, you know, that's going to be bad for them. And it's, I think it's the same for us because we come across a lot of atheists, especially on the internet. They seem to be everywhere on the internet. It's quite cutting. It's quite sarcastic. It's quite, they're not looking for, to have a conversation. They're not really looking to learn or looking for truth, but they're just looking to make an argument. Sam Harris is probably, for me, uh, at, at, at the pointy end, maybe because he's a little bit younger than the other guys. I don't know. He's maybe a little bit cooler, a little bit more hip. And he has this interesting angle on his atheism, this interesting spiritual angle, which I've called rational spirituality. So in his books, Harris tries to draw together the rationality and the logic of atheism and the naturalistic worldview, therefore we don't need God. But lo and behold, for the unbelievers, he hasn't got rid of spirituality and he finds a place and articulates a scientific Lee sound, or in his mind, scientifically sound place for spirituality as well. And this really appeals to the younger generation, the millennials and younger, because now you can have your atheism, you can have no God, no law, no oppression, but you can still have your transcendental spiritual experiences and all these weird, weird and wonderful things that come along with that. Sam Harris is, offers the, the new, he really, through his books, he articulates well this new atheist movement. I encourage you to have a little bit of a flick through them because in them you really see the core of this new atheistic rhetoric for a new generation. Basically, at the end of the day, having looked at most of Harris' books and reading a bunch of them last year, the problem for Sam Harris is that religion breeds fundamentalism. So really, religion is dangerous because a belief in God and a belief in sacred books makes people do crazy things. He's also very concerned and on this banging on constantly about the tolerance that we have in our society towards religion. Why are we protecting these dangerous belief systems? Why is society protected? Why do government give tax benefits? Why do we allow Christian schools? All of this constant concern is a problem. And this was, this was one of Nietzsche's complaints back 150 years earlier. Nietzsche was concerned. The reason that Nietzsche said God is dead is because he was frustrated with all the philosophers pussyfooting around this Christian religion. And that's why he came out and said, God is dead. We've outgrown God. We're too smart for God. We've, we've superseded God and religion. Can we just stop worrying about hurting people's feelings and just get on with the fact that God is dead? That day, that season of history was great and it helped us and it was beneficial, but it's over now. It's ridiculous now. It's irrational now. And Harris is on this same bad wagon of, can we stop protecting belief systems and stop protecting people's feelings. The beginning of this video with the four atheists sitting down and talking, they talk about offense. For the first 20 minutes, they talk all about offense. 
and how people can say anything to us and, and criticize us. And I've got scathing emails from Christians and about my books and blah, blah, blah. But the minute I question their faith, they're all offended and playing the victim card. And it's very, very interesting. So what for, what for Sam Harris is the answer there for? If religion's the problem and protecting religion's a problem and religion's bad and dangerous because believing in these things leads to these fundamentalism or fundamentalist acts like fl- flying planes into buildings, what's the answer? And for Harris, it's very simple. You'll be happy to know. We just need to replace all this religious mumbo jumbo with secularism. So everything's just secular and godless and dialogue. And Harris says in many of his interviews, he says, everyone knows murder is bad. I could just pop over the fence to my neighbor. This is quoting him. He says, I could pop over the fence to my next door neighbor. We could have a two minute discussion. We both know that murder is wrong, is bad, is evil. Everyone knows that. It's obvious. If we just talked and had space for dialogue without this oppressive religion and this Christian roots in our country, we could just talk. Everyone would be able to work out what's good and what's bad. Now, I would consider that a very naive claim that you could jump over the fence and anyone could just, because it's not really like that. And history has not suggested that. But for him, religion is such a problem that if we got that out the road, then it would be obvious. Abusing kids is bad. Murder is bad. It's, it's conventional wisdom. You know, we, we, we don't learn morals from the Bible. We learn morals by looking at what's obvious for human flourishing and killing each other isn't good. But I think that's a naive way to look at it. In his book, of End of Faith, he wrote this right on the back of, what time do I have to finish? 12. He wrote this right on the back of 9-11. So we just had the planes flying into the, into New York, into the buildings, and then he wrote this book called End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the End of Reason. In this book, he makes some interesting quotes, which I've highlighted here. He says that we know enough at this moment to say that the God of Abraham is not only unworthy of the immensity of creation, he is unworthy even of man. Why? Because God is a monster. He has poor character. If he does exist, he's hateful, genocidal. And he produces people that fly planes into buildings and kill each other. Words like God, Allah, must go the way of Apollo and Baal, or they would unmake our world. So not only is words like God, beliefs like in Allah, delusional, but they're actually dangerous. If we don't remove them from society, they're going to wreck this great society that we have created. Religion for Harris is fundamentally and inescapably dangerous. Basically, religion sanctions evil practices from murder, jihad, inquisitions, to also sanctioning the oppression of people's true sexual identity, making people feel guilty about who they want to sleep with. I mean, religion gets in the road and causes lots and lots of problems. The holy books do not reflect the writing skills of an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent deity. He considers the sacred texts to lack internal consistency and the, the lack of unity of style. It's contradictory. There's errors. There's mistakes. If God wrote this book, it would be written much better. 
And Harris paints the three theistic religions of um, Judaism, Islam, Christianity with the same brush constantly. There's no real difference for Sam Harris. Religious moderation is the product of secular knowledge and scriptural ignorance, which touches on what we were talking about yesterday. Religion is becoming more moderate. People are becoming less convicted about their faith. Christians say they believe in the Bible, yet they have sex and they murder and they are corrupt and they go to fight unjust wars. This moderation, Harris believes, is because of the rise of secularism. Secularist knowledge, the scientific method, our understanding of the world, we're beginning to realise that we can do it on our own. This is what's creating religious moderation. And people don't really believe their own scriptures. He attacks quite strongly the fact that people that say they're religious aren't really very good at their religion and don't even really know what their own books say. So for him, that just again suggests a real lack of God and a real lack of genuine faith. Faith, he calls it, is the devil's masterpiece. He particularly hates the fact that faith has this obsession with the afterlife. So he thinks that that's the most rotten, vile thing, that God would put this concern of what happens once we die on people. This is where faith is the devil's masterpiece. It positions people who are existing right now with pressure, anxiety, condemnation. It's a fear-based thing. Christianity, Islam, it's fear-based because it manipulates people in the now based on something that they don't know later in the afterlife. This is some of his evidence. In a letter to a Christian nation, which after scathing emails and letters for his first book, he writes this second book called Letter to a Christian Nation, and he challenges the faith of Americans, but it's very similar for us here in Australia, and writes particularly to Christians. Here's a couple of quotes. He says, science often comes at the expense of religious dogma. The maintenance of religious dogma is always at the expense of of science. For Harris, it's very, very clear science and religion are totally incompatible. He goes on to lament the religious dogmas of the virgin birth, the spirit entering, entering the zygote at conception, because Christians and Catholics and whatever will believe that um, life starts at conception. A God who hears prayers of all people and answers them according to his wisdom. All of these things are ridiculous dogmas and tenets of faith that cost us scientific wisdom. They cannot go together. If we lose the virgin birth, we'll get more science. If we keep the virgin birth, we'll, be, we'll get less science. Faith is nothing more than the license, so nothing more than the license religious people give one another to keep believing when reason fails. So again, you see these, the same pattern that came through the centuries of the different atheist thinkers is that religion is really there to explain life. It's man-made to try and understand when we don't have a reasonable answer. For Harris, faith is irrational. It's a problem. He, but when he defines faith, he's really defining what we would consider to be blind faith. See, we don't believe that faith is believing 
despite the facts. We don't believe that we're just going to push on with our Christian traditions and our worship traditions in the face of science, good science. That's not what we believe. But for him, all faith is blind faith. It's always blind to facts. It's always blind to science. And it has no ability to adjust because it's locked in. There is, in fact, this is a cracker, there is, in fact, no worldview more reprehensible in its arrogance than that of the religious believer. The creator of the universe takes an interest in me, approves of me, loves me, and will reward me after my death. My current beliefs drawn from scripture will remain the best statement of the truth until the end of the world. Everyone who disagrees with me will spend eternity in hell. He has an aggressive disdain for Christianity. He sees it as oppressive and as a problem for human flourishing. Oh, there it is there. In his book, Waking Up, and this is the third and final one I'll talk about as I get into a little bit of a close. In his third and final book, Waking Up, Spirituality Without Religion, this is fascinating. If there was one atheist book, although they will grate you like nothing else, if there's one book you were going to read a bit of, I would read this one because I think this typifies where we sit in our current culture. This really typifies that. It's this It's this. Phenomenal, and Bill would probably be able to articulate this better than me, but it's almost this bringing together of naturalism and transcendentalism, and I'm sure that there's a way of explaining that, but it's almost like the two are coming together. It's not really transcendentalism. It's really this naturalistic, atheistic, evolutionary worldview, but he tries to explain, Harris tries to explain in this book how spirituality can fit without Islam, without Christianity, without these other religions. Anything, Harris is another quote from Waking Up. Anything that denies we evolved from primates is utter delusion. So he starts with very clearly this is this naturalism is the answer and is the way of life. When the great philosopher mystics of the East are weighed against the, patri- weighed against the patriarchs of Western philosophical and theological traditions, the difference is unmistakable. It's interesting. So as you begin to read Harris, you begin to see that, man, he hates Christianity. He does not like the underpinnings of Western society, but he is very, very kind to the Eastern religions. So when Harris, he studied his... Um, First degree, which was in, what was it in? I can't remember now. He's done neuroscience, but he did that second. He did something first. Might have been law or economics or something. And then between these two degrees, he went off to India and had his own transcendental experience, sat under a guru, took illicit drugs, the works. And so he has this very soft spot for Eastern religion, which is interesting. Although his critique of the monotheistic religions is scathing. He's, he's, he has a soft spot for Eastern religion. And, he, and, and that's where we get this quote from, which is just absolutely absurd. I'm thinking, are you serious? Like Jesus Christ, the Bible, like all these Christian philosophers over time. But he says they're useless or pale in comparison to the mystics of the East. Our minds are all we have, says Harris. The basis of spiritual life is investigating the nature of consciousness and transforming its contents through religious type training like meditation. Consciousness is what gives our lives a moral dimension. So in order to articulate his rational spirituality, so his logical, scientific, naturalistic spirituality, he draws on 
the idea, the area of consciousness, which we don't know a huge amount yet at this point of time. But of course, because of the scientific method, we'll find it all out soon. It will all fit perfectly with naturalism. But for the time being, he draws upon the, 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 the left and right side of the brain and the separation and consciousness. And basically, Harris says, this fascinating story in this book, he says he was in Jerusalem doing a tour of the middle uh, of, of, of Israel and the Middle East. And he had this moment, had this moment while he was at the Red Sea. And it was a spiritual moment. And for a moment, he just wasn't, he didn't really have his feet on the ground. It was like he was lifted up and he had this spiritual moment. He's looked out from this mountaintop across the Red Sea. And he says that that is what Christians call spirituality. That is what people say is a spiritual experience. That's what connects them to the divine. But Harris says, it isn't that. It's actually just a play of my consciousness. And he says, through my years and years of meditation and training in meditation and refining my texts and my techniques and skill, I've actually been able to step out of my body, to set aside my, my consciousness. It's, it, it's like most people live behind their eyes and they look out from their eyes to the world and that's how they, they see the world. What I have what the Christians call spiritual experiences is actually just a matter of the mind. And if you can learn through meditation to step out from behind your eyes and all your perspectives and all your experiences and come to this place of separation where you can begin to see the world as if he said it was like I was hovering above myself and I could see down and I was free. Free of my experiences, free of my, my current moment. So we're not stuck in this current conscious moment, but we're able to separate ourselves. He says it's only possible because of all the meditation and training that I've done in order to have a skill of separating myself from myself. Christians call that a spiritual experience. Christians call that in a stadium, a worship thing or whatever, but it's actually just a play of human consciousness. That's how we can have science or where we can have spiritual rationality. The conventional sense of self is an illusion and spirituality, spirituality largely exists in realizing this moment to moment. That's the meditation training. He realized consciously where he was at and that's spiritual, what he calls a spiritual experience. It's impossible, Harris says, that the human possesses a spirit. Meditation is actually the key to cut through this illusion of the self. Getting back to Habermans, he puts these arguments of new atheism in three different categories. And I think that this was really helpful. That's why I put it there for you. He says that there is some thoughtful challenges to Christianity and to religion. Uh, for instance, people's Christians' despicable behavior in the name of God, the crusades, inquisitions, these kinds of things. Uh, maybe Christians sometimes, these, again, these are thoughtful things to consider. Sometimes Christians can have a huge emphasis on things like, like premarital sex and, and preach a lot about that or talk a lot about that, yet not put much emphasis on solving the world's you know, food problems or famine problems. And so there's this question of, of human behavior, which, 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 which I think needs to be addressed. And I think all of us as good Christians are trying to address that. We want people to live righteously. The second category, he says, are really just shoulder-shrugging arguments that the atheist throws at Christianities. He calls, Habermans in his article calls this, the Christians can be jerks argument. So it's this, it's this just common problem that we have where people 
people don't behave in accordance with what they believe. But obviously we know that people's behaviour doesn't mean that the truth is not the truth. The truth is the truth despite what Christians do should stand up. So a lot of the arguments of atheists are in this kind of area, but really they're just shoulder shrugging arguments. It's like, yeah, someone in my church did something stupid that's not very Christian. It doesn't mean Christianity isn't the truth. It's not what I'm arguing. People aren't going to be perfect. And there is lots of horrible things that have happened throughout time. Some of these things are thoughtful challenges that we really need to consider as a church and the people of God. And most of them are shoulder shrugging like, well, that's not really the issue. That's not really where the problem is. And this new atheist movement, however, often plays around the fringes. It's very emotive. It's very critical. It's very clever. Uh, but let's get down to the, the real arguments, which have actually been answered many, many times again over the centuries. The substance, substance, substantial arguments are things like God's existence, absolute morality, the problem of evil, miracles, the rationality of religion, Old Testament morality, which I think something I never thought of in the last five years is really coming to the fore. You know, why did God command the killing of women and children? You've got to be able to answer that. New Testament problems. We know that there's quotes in the New Testament that, that the writer got wrong, quoting Isaiah rather than Micah and things like this. Uh, corrupt religious origins, final justification, and religious versus atheist killings because there's been a lot of bloodshed over the journey. Haberman's conclusion to the new atheist movement is this, and again, I thought it was much better than I could say, so I put it in there. New atheist authors such as Hitchens, Harris, and Richard Dawkins often vary between catchy prose and bombastic, sometimes rambling commentary. But one major characteristic is that their pithiest critiques are short on substance, rarely hit crucial areas, and present far too many openings that simply beg for, for critique. In boxing terms, they tend to lead with their faces. Most of all, their factual charges aimed at the heart of Christianity are refuted by the data. For authors who claim that it is all about the evidence, their presentations leave much to be desired. But why is this new atheist movement catching? Why is it catching on for a new generation? Why are people getting around this? Why is it meaningful, especially to millennials and younger people who have grown up not going to Sunday school, grown up not really knowing anything about Jesus Christ, having zero understanding of Easter and Christmas and where these things come from? Well, I think it's two things. I think you've got this cultural collaboration between the two. You've got the rise of the nuns, so people who are now marking in the census no religion, so these non-religious or people who consider themselves irreligious or consider themselves to be unbelievers and, and that is their identity and they're okay with that, they want that, actually prefer that because to identify with religion is seen as extreme and is seen as delusional and is, is seen as, as unnecessary. If you're standing on the back of the last 200 years of these different atheist philosophers I've talked about, then you can see that, yeah, I can see why people would think Christianity is delusional. We've been saying it for a couple of hundred years in the West and it's really catching on. So people are identifying as non-religious and people don't want to be oppressed. They don't want to be put in a box. They don't want to be told who to go to bed with or what to believe or how to live their lives. And so at the same time, we've got a new generation of unbelievers who are more susceptible, I say more um, maybe open to these atheistic ideas because they tend to fit what we want. They tend to fit 
the secularization and the non-religion. It's the same in America as well. When I looked at the statistics there between 2007 and 2014, there's a 7% rise in the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation. And again, in America, it's a bigger group than the Catholics and the Protestants now. Interesting, the nuns tend to be younger. 35% of millennials identify as nuns or non-religious. Islamic sanctioned violence and terror is a problem. Why would you want to be religious? These Muslims are killing people, doing horrible things. Christianity is plagued by issues. We've had the Royal Commission here in Australia, sexual abuse charges, you know, the Catholic Church, and, and a lot of Pentecostals, like many of us in this room, don't realise it's been a massive problem in the Pentecostal Church as well. It just wasn't quite as big as the Catholics, but huge in the Pentecostal Churches, all churches. Bible literacy is at an all-time low, so just your average person really has no idea what the Bible says. You even see journalists and media personalities very bold and quick to, to quote scripture or say things, but you realise in two seconds they have no idea what they're talking about, totally taking things out of context. Not even questioned, Pastor, uh, Bill said before, it's not even questioned anymore. It's not fact-checked. We need a, like a Christian fact-checker. There's, there's, an, there's an app idea for you. And also, why is, this, why is it so attractive at the moment? Well, because you have ones like Sam Harris offering spirituality without God. It's pretty attractive. You can have all the benefits of the experience and the transcendent kind of touching of the universe and all these things without the downside of righteousness or pastors preaching at you or, the, or having to go to church. So you get the best of both worlds. But I think for us here in Australia, it opens up a real opportunity. I often look at this and think, man, this, this is good. Because if anything, the concern with religion, the worry about religion, even religion being dangerous, it opens up a great opportunity for Jesus Christ rather than religion to touch people's lives. I think in a lot of ways, you know, the enemy is doing us a favor because the stripping back of religion and these concerns is only going to allow for the truth of Jesus Christ to come through more and more and more. Christians that I talk to as a pastor for many years, they do find it difficult at times because we can be so enmeshed with our own belief system. They find it difficult to separate Jesus from church. You know, and often it's easier to bring someone to church but people actually need to come to Jesus Christ. And so I think this opens up a great opportunity for us. Yes, of course, we want to be a Christian nation. We want to have Christian schools. I appreciate the tax benefits I receive as a pastor because it allows me to get a half-decent wage. If I had to pay taxes as well, then like my church might not be able to afford me, and it would be a problem. It would be a problem. So I appreciate those things, but I'm willing, I'm willing to forego those things or lose those things, or let those kind of secularism come in and take those things away if it allows for the permeation of the gospel, if it allows for me to have a church of people who really believe in what we believe in because there's no benefits to Christianity. If you have a church like that where there's no tax benefit, there's no deductible giving receipts, there's, there, there's, there's no benefit. Why is the church growing or Christianity growing the quickest in places like Iran? Would it be a Christian could literally cost you your life? It's 
because Christianity always flourishes under persecution. It's the magic formula. You kill us, we grow. In the West, our affluence, it hurts us. The fact that Christianity is easy, it hurts us. It makes us overweight Christians, slow, cumbersome. We don't have an answer because we don't really need to have an answer. We've got Christian friends, Christian schools, tax-free Christian money. Like, why bother? Honestly, you can have a spiritual experience. If you hate your pastor, you go to the next best church down the road. Like, Think, I think the new atheist movement and what is happening opens up a great opportunity for us. And if anything, it's bringing us to places like this today so that we're better. We have a better answer for our faith. We have a better idea, not of only our own faith, but of how to actually understand why people are thinking and behaving in a particular way out there so we can reach our communities better for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Bless you.